0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio
1: app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app.
2: Good morning and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to be talking about why weight loss is hard because it is and I'm going to give you some of the science behind that as well as some strategies to help you on your journey if you are trying to lose weight and you can always email me fit at mpbonline.org and Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is going to be helping me out with some questions this morning.
1: All right, Josie, we're going to jump right into things. And the $60, $64,000 question, <laughs> why is weight loss so hard?
2: Well, you know, and I think it's important that we do acknowledge the fact that it can be very hard and it can be um, harder based on the different stage of life that we're in and different medical conditions that we have. And it, it may be something that um, was easier for us in a different part of our life and, and now has gotten harder and one of the reasons that it is so hard is from all of the confusion that is out there about our food and our nutrition and, and diets and all of those types of things as well as how much exercise we should be doing and Should we not be running and should we be lifting weights and all of these different things? So there's so much noise and confusion out there that uh, people sometimes get paralyzed by the choices or just bounce from choice to choice.
1: All right, so what sorts of questions should we ask ourselves when we start to try to lose weight?
2: Well, you know, I think the so there's all kinds of questions we can ask, right? And people usually ask, "What should I be eating? How much should I be eating? When should I be eating?" Those are the the questions that I get asked a lot in clinic because while my clinic is not A weight loss clinic. It is to, you know, to help with blood pressure and blood sugar and cholesterol and joint pain and all of these different issues. The number one thing that people say when I say, How can I help you? is, Well, I want to lose some weight, you know, and then they start with, I want to know what I should be eating. And all of those are great, important questions. And I'm glad that you're seeking out good information on how to do that. But the most important question that I'm going to come back with is, Why? you know why is weight loss important to you and it can be from a variety of reasons but that why really does shape how we're going to move forward right if it is because somebody else told me i need to lose weight mm, that's a that's a and i don't want to say red flag but that's a i need for us to step back and go really what is driving you because when weight loss gets hard we've have to draw on that motivation to change and if it is because somebody else wants you to do something you may uh, not continue on with that plan and so you know maybe it is that you don't recognize yourself that when my weight loss journey started you know, uh, let's see, my youngest is 12. And so it was about a year after he was born. It's because I didn't recognize myself and not from a, I looked different, but I didn't recognize the way I felt. I just felt sluggish. I felt tired. um, I didn't have a lot of joy, you know, going on. And so I didn't recognize the way I felt. And I went, hmm, What's going on? What do I need? What do I need to do? And, you know, ultimately, weight loss was part of that. It was not the primary focus, but the weight losing some weight was an important part of kind of reclaiming how I felt about myself and finding that joy again. And so there's always a why it may be to come off of medications. I get that a lot. People say, well, you know, I just got started on a medicine for diabetes and I don't want to add any more or I want to come off of this medicine. And that's a great goal to have because then it becomes not just about how much weight you lose. It becomes about all these other strategies that are so important for controlling blood sugar and starting to be able to come off of medication. So we always start with the why. That really shapes everything.
1: So here's one that's not on the list, but it's related. Mm -hmm. Um, So is it a good idea when you have your why to maybe... I don't know write it down and stick it on your refrigerator
2: absolutely or stick it somewhere that you're going to see it right a lot of people stick it on their fridge uh and they'll say so when i go to get a snack i i see it right and and that may work for you what i don't want to have happen is for us to associate food with being bad or that that's something negative like if you're hungry i I want you to eat. It's again about what we're eating and how much and and the why. Why am I eating this? Am I eating it because I'm truly hungry and this sounds good, or am I eating because I'm stressed or sad? You know, any of these different kinds of of emotions that often lead us to choose different foods. So um, I put my why, which is not a weight loss why. It's just a why. You know, why I. Come do this radio show, and why I am in the field of medicine, and you know why I do so many cooking demos and you know, public events. Um, it's because I want my family to prioritize their health and wellness. And so I try to lead by example in that. And I don't always get it right. None of us will always get it right. So I put it on my mirror uh, in my bathroom. So I see it in the mornings uh, when I'm getting uh, getting ready. And my youngest son, when he was a little bit younger, he noticed that I had those things on the bathroom mirror. So he started leaving me notes um, in random places. And actually, the other day, I found one on the back of the door in the bathroom that said, the toilet. I'm not sure why he felt like he needed to leave me that message because he is the one who needs to follow that advice. But uh, they're watching, right? Your kids are watching and picking up on those um, those cues that they see. And he knows if you think something's important, you write it down, you put it where you're going to see it every day.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, here's a term for you to uh, uh, define for us. Metabolic adaptation.
2: That is a really good one. And, you know, I want to step back a second before I dive right into that, because it it plays into the word diet, right? And metabolic adaptation is really a function of uh, restrictive diets a lot of times. So the first question that people ask me is, you know, what should I be eating or what diet is best? And the short answer to that is, all diets work in the short term, right? Because diet, um, by definition, is restricting something, whether it be restricting calories or it is restricting certain uh, macronutrient groups, like it's a low-carb or a low-fat um, diet, or it is, um, you know, cutting out um, specific um categories of food. So anytime we're taking in less calories than we uh, need, on the short term, we will lose weight. And so that's how they gain so much popularity because people go, oh, look, it's been two weeks and I've lost 15 pounds, right? But the longevity of that diet does not hold up. And one of those reasons is that um, metabolic adaptation. So once we restrict out things to a certain level, our body it it goes. Hmm, I have figured you out. You are just not going to feed me uh, what you used to feed me, and so I'm going to get more efficient at uh, living and at how many calories it takes to. Um, to keep me alive, and I'm going to slow everything down so that I don't um, I don't die, and that's why weight loss often plateaus on really restrictive diets. That's why once you stop a restrictive diet, you will often regain the weight and then some more. And actually, a lot of the research supporting this came out of looking at um, Biggest Loser participants and those that lost a large, significant amount of weight. It usually was from fairly restrictive dietary practices and really ramping up exercise and even over exercising a lot of the times. And, you know, once they lost the weight, and then stopped doing some of those things, uh, they regained all that weight and often a little bit more. And so anytime there's a, a plateau with folks, I always do a deep dive into how much are we exercising and how much are we eating. And I may actually ask you to Add some things back in and bump your calorie count up a little bit, and people look at me like I have lost my mind when I tell them that. Uh, but I'm trying to help, kind of overcome this this adaptation. All right, Kevin, what you got for me?
1: Well, before we jump back to the list, you mm-hmm. know, during the break, you you threw me a question, which I'm <laughs> and said, what would the what's the one thing you would not stop eating?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess I'm hesitating because it's probably not going to be a healthy thing. I guess That's okay. Um, so I think about it. I would probably have to say cake.
2: Okay, and that's fine. You know, and that's one thing that I often ask my patients. I'm like, "What's non-negotiable?" When we start uh, talking about uh, making changes to our nutrition, and that's important, right? Because if it is that important to you then me not respecting that boundary and figuring out how we make that fit in your dietary pattern and still get you to your goals like that, that's not going to work. Right. You're not going to feel seen and heard and supported. And that's what I want you to feel when you're working with someone on making changes to your nutrition, because truly any food can fit in a healthy, well-balanced um Eating pattern. And I think cake is a great one. You know, if you think if you think across the totality of years you have left on this planet to think about not having cake, um, you know, that's that's no good. Right. For me, it would be really good bread. Like I'm not going to give up bread. Bread is delicious. You can smear it with all kinds of wonderful things and uh, use it to sop up stuff on your plate and all those things. So if somebody told me to give up like good artisan bread, like a good baguette, I'd be like, no, friend, we're not going to do that. Um, And I'm not going to really listen to anything else you have to say because I don't feel like you're listening to what I have to say. And so it's always a good place to start. And it can be something that we would consider to have no nutrition in it whatsoever and that's okay. you know uh, almost nothing out there has no nutrient in it. Even our packaged products have some vitamins and minerals and things added to them. And when eaten um, occasionally and appreciated for the for what they are, they can they can fit in absolutely.
1: All right, so the next question is there seems to be so many competing ideas out there about nutrition. How come?
2: Well, a lot of times it's because people are trying to sell you stuff. Um, but there are also, so nutrition research in and of itself is hard to conduct in kind of the gold standard of research, right? So we did a study before on um, looking at the rigor of medical studies and, you know, evaluating levels of evidence and that kind of top tier way to do that are these kind of randomized controlled trials um, where your uh, the participants are often blinded to whether they're getting the placebo or whether they're getting medication and, and these different types of things and that's incredibly hard to do from a nutrition standpoint um, especially in uh, a long uh, looking at something over a long amount of time right because I would need to either, provide you with all of the food that you have to eat, but you're still a human and behavior factors in there. And so even if I gave you, here's your your perfect diet to eat, uh, you might just sneak a little something else in there, right? So then I'd have to keep you somewhere and, and feed you in, in that way. And that's hard to do, again, in a large scale for a long amount of time that's not super feasible. So a lot of research studies that are around nutrition are done um, uh, uh, as a prospective study or a retrospective. And so retrospective means we're looking back over things. So we may um, take a look at so there's, there's national data out there um, that people submit about dietary patterns and smoking and exercise and all these kinds of things. And that sits in a large database. And we can kind of choose an outcome of interest maybe that we want to look at, let's say cholesterol levels. And then we can look back at those folks and, and say, well, the people that ate this way or reported that they ate this way had a lower cholesterol than the people who reported that they ate this way. So this is probably leading to... Uh, a, a food that is as good for our cholesterol. Or we can take a small group of folks and uh, adjust their dietary pattern a little bit and redraw labs and, and look at those kinds of things. But there's always ways to kind of look at that data and report it out. So a lot of the times um, when you're looking at uh, fruit and vegetables, and you're looking at meat and dairy and eggs and those kinds of things. The way the data is grouped together is a carnivore diet, so somebody or an omnivore diet, people who eat all the all the things, and then a vegetarian diet that's going to be largely fruits and vegetables, but it's also going to have dairy and eggs in it. And you'll usually see that that vegetarian diet. Outperforms the omnivore diet in terms of uh, heart benefits and those types of things but do we need the dairy and the egg right um, and, and that's often where we get a lot of uh, press about why we do need dairy or we do need eggs but if we parcel it out a little bit more, we see even better health results on folks who maybe don't eat as much dairy and eggs. So nutrition research is is hard. And we tend to pick up on little snippets of things. uh, And those get run with in the media. Uh, And so it's so confusing for folks out there. They're like, should I eat fruit? Shouldn't I eat fruit? Should I eat eggs? Shouldn't I eat eggs? Maybe I should have grass-fed beef instead of regular beef at the grocery store. You know, all these different kind of competing uh, messages out there. And it truly can be very difficult to, to wade through it all. Even for folks, even for doctors and nurses to wade through some of those different things there. And that's why there's so much trouble out there.
1: You know, one in particular, to me, it seems like eggs are one of those where Mm -hmm. it's like, it's good for you, it's bad for you, it's good for you, it's bad for you. So split it down the middle and just have them every once in a while.
2: (laughs) Well, and and you're kind of hitting on it, right? So anytime somebody asks me, should I be eating this particular food? My response to them is, instead of what? Right? So if you were eating... Pop-Tarts for breakfast, right? So if you say, should I have an egg for breakfast? And I say, what's it replacing? And you say, Pop-Tarts, I'm going to say, yeah, right? Because you truly are going to be kind of healthier in terms of you're going to have some lean protein. Yeah, it's going to have some cholesterol in it and some fat in it and that kind of stuff. But it is a win over the Pop-Tart, right? And if that's what you have access to, can afford and would enjoy to have then, then, yeah, right. So it's always about what are we replacing? Because there's no magic foods, right? Adding an egg is not magic, but replacing an ultra-processed, highly refined, sh- sugary item with that is probably going to be better uh, than what you're doing there. All right, we do have a caller on the line, so we'll go to Bob in Hattiesburg and say good morning, Bob.
0: Good morning. How are
2: you? I'm um, wonderful. And,
0: and what, and, in line with the question or the um, discussion you were having about research mm-hmm. on various diets, and how does that research factor out different indices? Now I know that I personally have naturally low cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always have had. I've been fortunate that way. Other people have high cholesterol, and it really, if you look at what eating habits either myself or others have, they don't seem to correlate to yeah. uh, causing cholesterol. So those, there have to be other human characteristics that we're either fortunate or unfortunate to have. How does medical research factor those out when they're doing the... Uh, testing on various diets
2: or foods. That is wonderful. And you're absolutely correct. And so a lot of times we call those confounding variables and we can control for those. So a lot of times when we're building out our kind of our groups to look at, we're going to put people with similar characteristics in that group. So we may put folks that meet a certain criteria for having high cholesterol in a group that we're testing a food on that's looking at high cholesterol. So there's a lot of statistical back-end work that can be done to try and uh, eliminate those um, variances that occur naturally in people okay well we can never control all of them but that that's a great question thank you thank you bob have a good day All right, Kevin, you know, we talk about nutrition confusion a lot, and we've actually done a couple shows on nutrition confusion. I encourage you to go check those out on the podcast um, by searching for Southern Remedy, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, But again, Good rule of thumb, just like I mentioned before that caller, is thinking about what am I replacing this food with? And if it's something that um, is, you know, super refined, lots of added sugar, not very much um, protein and maybe higher in saturated fat or salt, then replacing it with a leaner choice, even if it's not, quote unquote, perfect, is going to be it's going to be a win.
1: All right. So there are all those reports and studies out there about uh, nutrition and diet. So is there anything that everybody seems to agree on in terms of diet?
2: Well, I would say the majority of people. So there's always outliers that are going to tell you you don't need any vegetables. But the vast majority of clinicians and scientists that work in nutrition, as well as your registered dietitian nutritionists, are all going to agree on vegetables as something that should be kind of front and center on our plate just for a variety of reasons one they're mostly fiber and water and so fiber and water don't have calories uh, but they do have bulk and so they take up room in your belly so that you're full and satisfied because that's one of the downfalls of super restrictive diets is they often leave you unsatisfied because in order to stay under the calorie limit they want for you, you have to eat little tiny portions and your belly's not built that way. So uh, vegetables on the plate are always a win. And people ask me all the time, what vegetables? Whichever ones you like, you will eat, you can afford and have access to. Right? Like, there's no, I don't care whether you choose a green bean or an asparagus, right? Whichever one you like and you have access to and you afford and you know how to cook it, um, is, is the, is the win in that book. The other thing that the vast majority of people will agree on is that the food needs to be as whole as possible. Um, so it's often called whole foods, and I'm not talking about you got to shop at that grocery store, although if you do, that's fine as well. But foods that have been not as messed with, right? Uh, and there's always food processing, and that's not necessarily what we're talking about. I mean, if you get the cut up carrots at the grocery store, that is a form of food processing. We're talking more about the ultra processed foods, meaning it doesn't really look like what it started out as. And it's hyper palatable, meaning a lot of uh, research has gone into how to make that thing taste and feel in your mouth good, right? Like um, mouthfeel is a real thing, like how that food and texture feels in your mouth, how crunchy something is, how smooth and creamy it is, all those things, things play into why we buy this brand versus this brand and that kind of stuff so those ultra processed foods are often created because we like the way they crunch the way they're smooth you know how much sugar or salt or fat they have in them um, that that makes us happy and makes us feel full and satisfied and so again there can be places for that in our diet but the majority of our foods need to be not quite as messed with. And usually what people come back at me with is, well, that is too expensive, right? And I completely understand that. And that's why we have to be realistic and work within our budget, right? So if all we can afford is canned vegetables, that is still going to be better than potato chips, right? Um, It's all about Again, what are we replacing things with? So are we replacing a canned green bean? Um, Are we replacing French fries from the fast food restaurant with a canned green bean? That is that's going to be a win, uh, you know, in in terms of the fiber content, uh, in terms of some of the vitamins and minerals that are in there. So we get so hung up on trying to be perfect, you know, having like this perfect clean diet, that we get stuck right there in the planning because we go, well, I can't afford to eat that way. And that's OK. We can build a healthy-ish eating pattern that will accomplish the majority of the things that we're trying to to reach um, within, within that budget. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we've been talking about why weight loss is hard today on this episode. If you want to join our conversation, email me, fit at mpbonline.org. Before we hop into our next question, I want to finish a little bit about what we can all well not all what the majority of uh, nutrition uh, folks can agree on um, and before the break we talked about that most of us will agree on vegetables as a major component of our diet we can agree on minimally processed ingredients uh, and another thing that most of us will get on board with is reducing added sugars uh, and we've we've done a show on added sugars before but you know, briefly. Uh, added sugars are things that we as the human or the manufacturing company are adding into that product to make it sweet. Uh, and that can come in a variety of different names. Uh, not always is it going to say sugar or cane sugar. Um, it may say high fructose corn syrup. It may say maple syrup. It may say honey. It may say brown rice syrup. Um, I always look for the words that sound like they have syrup in them. And that's a that's a sugar that is added. Um, brown sugar as well. I actually had someone this week who had a lot of questions about brown sugar because we tend to tell people that that brown foods are healthier when we're thinking about grains, like whole grains, whole wheat is usually brown. But brown sugar is just white sugar with molasses added to it. So it is still an added sugar and still has kind of regular refined white sugar in it there. Um, So added sugars are definitely something we need to take a, take a look at. And the majority of nutrition professionals would agree with that as well. Uh, there are some that are going to say no added sugars. And I find that incredibly hard to eat that way. Um, unless I am truly making everything myself from a, from, from a whole food. Uh, if you're going to use any kind of convenience products, a lot of them are going to have some in there. So we just want to limit them as much as possible. And usually we want to, for women, we want to limit that to about six, uh, teaspoons a day. And one teaspoon is, um, Uh, four grams. So when you're looking at your package labels, uh, that's about 24 to 25 grams of added sugar in a day for women. For men, that is nine teaspoons. So that's 36. So I always look at the label and go, is this where I want to spend my added sugar calories right now Um, or how many are in this and if it's um, the other thing you can look at on the label is the little percent that's there that's the percent daily value and so if something is uh, five percent or less that's considered low in that that particular nutrient Uh, if it's 20 percent or more that's considered high in that nutrient Um, so maybe you really like uh, sunny d uh, pick that thing up, look on the back and see what the added sugar content of that is. Uh, and if it's, you know, in that 10 percentish range, that's a lot of added sugar to kind of be spending on a beverage that's not going to take up a whole lot of room in your belly. Um, you might want to swap that out for um, just regular orange juice with no sugar added there. Um, so it's always an important thing to kind of keep keep at the front of, uh, of what you're looking at. And then the other thing we can kind of all agree on or the majority of us can agree on is working on reducing refined grains. So, um, you know, more processed grain products um, uh, and move more toward a whole grain way of eating and the way you know whether something is whole grain, again, is not the color of it um, because a lot of um processed grain products will have caramel color adding added to them to make them brown Um, that first ingredient on the label should say whole whatever whole wheat whole oat whole grain something like that and that points to it being a whole grain product there all right what questions you have for me kevin
1: well, I wanted to do two quick things on the food label that mm-hmm. I've uh, experienced when I've started paying more attention to them. And that is with the added sugars, it is fairly easy because it does kind of spell it out there mm-hmm. on the label to, to compare and contrast. So I've been trying to do that and look for, again, it's which is which of the, you know, say you do like cookies. Well, if you're going to eat cookies, you can at least try to find the ones that have the less added sugar on them. Mm-hmm. So I think that those expanded food labels are very helpful. And then the other one that you kind of helped me with the other day, because I said I found some baked beans that were zero percent added sugar, which Mm -hmm. they are. But then you said, aha, but what else is there? (laughs) And I noticed that they are slightly higher in sodium.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. Because, again, it's all about palatability of things and what uh, what tastes good and what makes us want to buy them and so sometimes if we're going to pull back on something that would normally make us feel satisfied with eating it um, like sugar then we're going to add something else maybe it's fat or maybe it's sodium um, to uh, to again increase that way that it, it tastes and makes us happy and it may be a, an, an appropriate trade-off right like it may be a a minuscule increase in sodium that i would say you know it, looking at the totality of your other foods that you're consuming that little bump in sodium is is fine um you know it, depending on what else you're eating if you're having it with uh chips and it may not be right that may be too much sodium at one time for us to take a look at there
1: All right, so next on the list is one of those words that you see and you think, oh, yeah, I know what that means. But then when someone were to actually ask you what it means, you would probably Mm -hmm. be stuck for an answer. So (laughs) tell us, what is metabolism?
2: Well, I think when we hear the word metabolism, most people think calorie burn. Right. And it's it's how many calories I burn in a day. And you're correct. But there are many things that go into determining uh, what somebody's metabolism is. And there are kind of four big buckets of things that make up uh, a total energy expenditure. Right. For for a human. And the one that we hear a lot about is BMR, basal metabolic rate. And so what the basal metabolic rate is, and it does account for the vast majority of our overall metabolism, it is the number of calories we burn being alive, right? At rest, not doing anything. So um, right now, uh, my breakfast is digesting. Um, my Um, I'm blinking right now. I am breathing right now. My heart is beating. All of that takes energy to do. And so we're going to burn a certain amount of calories on that. And people ask all the time, well, how do I determine what my basal metabolic rate is? There are equations out there for that. But, if you were going to look at an individual person's actual BMR, you would have to like lay them down on a table and they would wear um, some some gadgets to collect information, but literally no movement, no drinking water, no eating food, not getting up to go to the bathroom like still uh, in order to to calculate a twenty four hour BMR um, on that. So the other components, and that's about seventy percent of your total metabolism comes from that basal metabolic rate, just what it takes for us to live. The other pieces of it, uh, a lot of people go, "Ooh, exercise, that's going to be a part of my metabolism. And it is, but it's actually a much smaller amount of our overall uh, metabolism than you would think. Um, Actually, the next biggest contributor to metabolism is something called NEAT, right? Non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's a mouthful, right? Thermogenesis, just think about um, the burning of things, the burning of calories, um, but non-exercise activity. So if we break that down, that is movement, right? That is not, I'm going for a run, I'm going to lift weights, any of these kinds of things. But right now, you guys can't see me, but I'm a big hand talker. Like I make a lot of gestures and I use my hands when I talk. Um, But that is Non-exercise activity, right? Um, getting up and walking to the bathroom and back, brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, um, taking um, a walk around your office, doing laundry. all of what we would call your activities of daily living are part of non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, so that neat. And that actually accounts for about 15% of your uh, metabolism. Uh, and then you've got that um thermogenic effect of food, which got a lot of press a couple of years ago. And that was the whole debate of should I drink cold water or should I drink warm water? Which one will burn more calories? And I'm like, guys – um, whichever water you will drink is what I want you to drink because we're talking just a few calories here or there from that. Um, but it does take energy to digest our foods and you know break things down and so again the the more whole food our item is, the more work our body has to do, right because what we eat, Uh, looks different than what we eliminate and so all the steps in our body that turn the food that we put in our mouth and chew up into what we excrete um, that takes energy to do that so that's kind of the the thermogenic effect of food Uh, and then you've got the activity uh, your actual exercise activity and that's only some between about five to seven percent of your overall uh, metabolism is determined by by that exercise and that can sound people are like well i'm just not going to do it then but Five to seven percent makes up a, a a good chunk, and it's still an important part of um, of your metabolic rate. And so, all of those things together uh, make up how many calories we burn in a day and we want to balance that with the number of calories that we are consuming and if we're trying to just maintain our weight we want to balance those things fairly equally Uh, and if we're trying to lose weight we want to have a modest reduction in um the calories that we consume, uh, so we want to have a little bit a little bit of a what we call a calorie deficit there, but not an extreme calorie deficit because we talked about that at the beginning when we go really massive with really restrictive diets ultimately we 're going to get into that metabolic adaptation and we're going to stop um uh losing weight and kind of plateau out there. Now we've been talking all about why weight loss is hard and we do have some callers on the line so we will go to Madison and say good morning Jan, how can I help you?
0: Well, it's not it, it's not necessarily how you can help me maybe how can I help you? Well, like, I you love to hear it. Tell me. It. <laughs> there there is an application you can download it's free it's called YUKA and you can it, you can scan the barcode on any ingre- or any food, and it will give you on a scale of one to hundred whether it's good for you or bad for you. Mm. Lower lower meaning bad, and higher meaning high. Right. Good. It will also say poor or good or excellent. And I've been plant based for twelve years, and Wonderful. so I look for plant based and. Uh, but also, when it tells you, gives you that scale, mm-hmm. it will also tell you what's in the food that is good for you and what's in the food that's not so good for you. Nice. So, it's, yeah, it, the icon is a little carrot, and it's free. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it, I that's the best you, part, is it free? really free. Uh, I stop people in the grocery store and say, hey, have, you, have y'all seen this, this application? And a lot of people have mm-hmm. never heard of it. Mm-hmm. But when you show them what it will tell you, uh, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. And it stops you from buying some stuff that's really nasty for you.
2: Wonderful. So I, that, you know, I appreciate that. that. I will have to download it and check it out. Do that. All right. All right. Thank thanks, Dan. All right. And then we will go to Memphis and say, good morning, T. How can I help you?
0: I had an operation, and when I had the operation, they cut part of my stomach mm-hmm. out and attached my intestines to my stomach. Mm-hmm. But I lost a lot of weight mm-hmm. after that. And my question is, uh, Do I, is there anything I can do to gain weight back or...
2: What? Because I can't wear any of the clothes I had before. The operation. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, so the the first or the kind of my number one recommendation would be to look for a registered dietitian in your area, and you can actually go on eatright.org. dot org, and that is the website for the um, National Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and you should be able to put in your zip code, and they'll show you where there are dietitians in your area, but. What we want to do is make sure that we're adding back nutrient-dense, high-quality calories for you. Because what happens a lot of times when people are wanting to gain weight is they just start to add, um, like, I'm just going to add cheese and butter to everything. Uh, And so that can be a strategy, depending on how severe our our weight loss is and what we're trying to accomplish. But, um, you know, we're going to probably need to prioritize protein intake on you, um, you know, without knowing what your labs are looking like in like your kidney function looks like it's a little hard for me to say there um, but looking for ways to get more nutrient dense items in there so things that are going to have good high quality calories in them um, one thing that I usually um, add in with folks I'm actually working with a couple of folks right now on gaining weight and it's like. You know, how do I add like avocado to, to things? How do I add peanut butter, or peanut butter powder, or any of the nut butters to things to get that extra fat and protein content of things that are going to give you um, nutrients and not just calories. Um, And so, you know, you really do need a more of a comprehensive assessment with someone that works on um, building diet plans so that they can distribute your calories throughout the day uh, in a uh, more helpful way. And it may be that you need, you know, Five small meals, since your stomach volume is not what it used to be, um, and so instead of kind of doing a, a three meal a day thing, you know five smaller meals throughout the day so that we get the correct number of calories on board for you, as well as the correct kind of macronutrients, your protein, your carbon, your fat to support good lean muscle tissue and heart health
0: what what type did you I can go to to find out. It was the name
2: of a dietitian. Uh-huh. Eat right. So E-A-T-R-I-G-H-T dot org. And you should be able to find that there. If you have any trouble with that, just send me an email, fit at mpbonline.org, and I will reach out to my network of dietitians and see if we can find someone for you, okay?
0: Okay, thank you so much.
2: You're so welcome. Have a great rest of your day. All right, Kevin. We probably got time for for one more question on your list. What you got for me?
1: All right. So we talked about metabolism. Does it go down as we age?
2: So uh, yes and no. So we <laughs> we tend to think of it as it's like inevitably going to decline as we age, and we say, "Well, I'm older, and that's why I'm not able to lose weight like I could before." And if we just look at metabolism as a function of years lived no but what does go down as we age is muscle mass and that is the biggest contributor to our metabolism is how much lean muscle tissue and muscle mass we have on board so as we start to lose muscle mass and that happens as early as in the 30s we start to uh, lose muscle mass then our metabolism is going to shift because of that loss of muscle mass. So the strategy there is to try and hang on to that muscle tissue as much as we can. And that's why I said even though exercise in and of itself doesn't contribute a ton to our overall metabolic rate, it is so vitally important to maintaining muscle mass as well as growing muscle mass or generating more uh, lean muscle tissue, especially as we age. So it's it's not there just to, to uh, so that we can eat whatever we want. <laughs> it's there to help support that metabolism.
1: All right, two minutes left. So you could give us maybe a tip about how we combat the decline in metabolism.
2: Absolutely. So if we think back to those four buckets of things I said make up our metabolism and the neat principle that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, that if we compare people that have, quote unquote, the highest metabolism versus those that have the lowest, that neat uh, area is the one that is contributing to that higher metabolism. So making sure that we are moving, right? Notice I didn't say exercising, but that we are moving throughout our day, that we are not sitting for prolonged periods of time, we are getting up and just doing movement as one of the greatest ways to support a healthy metabolism or a higher metabolism that is going to burn more calories for us. So thinking about parking a little bit farther away at the grocery store or um, taking at least one flight of stairs, even if you can't do, you know, four or five flights of stairs, which that's hard, um, just taking one flight of stairs and then riding the elevator the rest of the way, um, making sure that uh, you uh, get up and move during commercial breaks when you're home watching TV, just not sitting for you know so many hours in in a row. And that's to me, as someone who has not always been an exercise lover, that is so much less intimidating to me to think about just getting up and and walking or getting up and and going to the to the bathroom and back intentionally every hour or so is is much less intimidating than thinking i gotta go to the gym right or i gotta go lift some weights all of those things there so just look for ways to incorporate movement into your day and that is the first step in supporting a good healthy metabolism You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I've been your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, joined today by the wonderful producer Kevin Farrell. If you didn't catch today's show, remember that you can listen anytime by downloading our podcast. Just search for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. And be sure to tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup.